Thank goodness that Satoshi had the foresight to design Bitcoin in response to the last global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. We are headed in a dangerous direction, and we are lucky to have this tool. I'm not talking as a bond trader, a pessimist. I'm talking as a realist. The bond markets are far larger and far more susceptible to contagion than are the equity markets. The credit markets are the dog that wags its tail, equity markets. And if credit markets are not happy, the equity markets are in for a world of hurt. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. This is the place where you will hear all of the best in Bitcoin made audible. And we have got some amazing stuff coming up this week. And I am finally, I finally feel like I'm towards the end of a big backlog, like I'm closing out a lot of pieces. So hopefully I'll have lots to publish this week. Stay tuned. I am Guy Swan, your host, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Um, and today uh, I have finally wrapped up essentially i've got a little uh some little touch-ups to do on parts three and four but i have wrapped up greg foss's incredible report uh the sucker is 40 dense pages of just straight fire on why every fixed income investor needs to consider bitcoin as portfolio insurance and we are hitting parts one and two today um, I, there will not be a guy's take on this because I'm just low on time right now, but I wanted to get this out so that y'all could start uh, working your way through it. This is an incredible four-part report on the case for Bitcoin from the fixed income investment perspective. It lays out, first he lays out his history in the markets, how he has seen and evaluated the risks and kind of the market contagions in the, uh, uh, specifically in the credit market of years past and how he's uh, responded to and prepared for uh, things like the uh, great financial crisis in 2008 and also uh, uh, where he was and what he saw unfolding back in the late 1980s, all of this stuff. And then in part two, he really kind of digs into the nerdy framework of understanding the credit markets, the major pieces, and most importantly, how to price and understand risk. Now, he did use a lot of acronyms in this. Uh, and I tried to, everywhere that I could, I tried to actually read out like what the acronym meant so that it was easier to follow in audio. And hopefully everything's pretty easy to follow. Um, but we are going to have a, we haven't scheduled it yet, but I really want to have a follow-up with Greg Foss to just talk about this whole report and the ideas in general. Um, so fingers crossed that that is going to happen soon. Uh, that will be our quote-unquote guys take Greg and I will hopefully just kind of break down uh, all of this stuff. If you want to bug him on Twitter to make sure it happens, uh, please do so. Uh, this is a absolute must listen. And like I said, parts three and four are dropping tomorrow. And uh, in particular, in particular, parts three and four, uh, which you're going to want to listen to this one just to just to get up to speed. But they are going to make you more bullish than you can possibly know. So get ready. It's about to be nuts. Uh, real fast, I just want to thank our amazing sponsors for making this show happen. We have 
the fold card that gets you sats back on everything in life. Uh, I have uh, just paid for uh, my Airbnb at Bitcoin 2022, and I'm so happy. And I'm going back to, I haven't spun yet. I haven't, but I'm very excited. Uh, then we have Swan Bitcoin, uh, swanbitcoin.com slash guy. We'll take you right there with my page. Swan Bitcoin is the place to buy Bitcoin automatically, automatically withdraw and withdraw to your keys with a safe, secure, easy to use hardware wallet like the Bitbox hardware wallet, the Bitbox 02. It has literally become my most used uh, hardware wallet these days. And then lastly, what I just bought my accommodations for, the Bitcoin 2022 conference. We are literally 60 days away. Get 10% off with coupon code GUYSWAN. Discounts and goodies and uh, links for uh, all the affiliate stuff for all these guys in the show notes. So don't forget to check that out. And with that, it is time to get into today's incredible read. Parts one and two of Greg Foss's report on why a Bitcoin allocation will actually reduce the risk of your portfolio. And it's titled, Why Every Fixed Income Investor Needs to Consider Bitcoin as Portfolio Insurance. Written by Greg Foss. What credit markets are telling investors, how to understand them, and how to protect yourself from what's coming. Part 1 Over the last six months, I've had the pleasure of being a guest on the Rockstar Podcast three separate times. This is a proud accomplishment for two reasons. Firstly, I'm proud to have been able to share my opinions on Bitcoin with Tom and Nick and the amazing audience. While Bitcoin is only just over 12 years old, since 1988, I have been searching for a solution to fiat that Bitcoin offers. I am passionate about my discovery. Sometimes I'm a little too passionate, which can lead to alienation. Accordingly, I'm also proud that I did not fumble my first invite, and that led to a second and third invite on the show. I believe each episode got better, more in-depth, and free-flowing. That feeling helped me gain the confidence to propose an idea to Tom and Nick whereby I want to write a weekly blog to the Rockstar audience that links my experience in my 30-odd year career in the credit markets with the beauty of Bitcoin. Very simply, Bitcoin is the most important financial innovation and technology that I have seen in my career. Initially, I loved the idea of Bitcoin due to its hard cap supply limit of 21 million coins. 21 million for the entire world population, investment community, and everyone looking for a store of value that was durable, portable, transferable, divisible, fungible, and scarce. Perhaps I'm a little geeky since I am an engineer by training, but when I first saw the blockchain in action on tradeblock.com, together with transactions that were being processed and stored in the blockchain, I was hooked. I am visual. For me, seeing is believing in the tech. This weekly blog, in which I plan to submit 10 to 12 installments, will not rehash the beauty of Bitcoin and its attributes. There are plenty of good books on that subject, including Magic Internet Money, a book about Bitcoin authored by Jesse Berger, a fellow Canadian with whom I shared the last Rockstar podcast stage. The book is awesome. Jesse is a star, and I don't need to rehash his eloquent production. What I bring to the discussion is over 30 years of risk management and survival in the credit markets. 
I survived because I adapted. If I realized I had made a mistake, I exited, went flat, or even reversed a position, from long to short or vice versa. In my opinion, credit markets are the most unforgiving of the capital stack. They're also the most ruthless. If you are right, you are paid a coupon and you get your principal returned. If you are wrong, the interest coupon is in jeopardy. The price of the credit instrument starts to fall towards some sort of recovery value, and all sorts of contagion and correlation plays start to come into play. In short, I quickly learned to play probabilities. Expected value analysis. You can never be 100% certain. I said on the last podcast that credit guys are pessimists. That is true because the return distribution tends to be asymmetric to the downside. A credit that is outperforming its risk profile, in other words, earnings, growth, cash flows are better than expected, will not increase its coupon and share that with the debt holders. Those benefits accrue to the equity. As a result, bond traders tend to ask, how much can I lose? Equity traders and investors tend to be optimists. They love growth, believe trees grow to the moon, and are generally higher risk takers than bondies, everything else being equal. This is not surprising since their priority of claim ranks below that of credit. Equity is worth zero unless bonds are worth par. If you manage money professionally, equities are for capital gains, whereas bonds are for capital preservation. Equity guys are expected to lose money on many positions, provided their winners far outstrip the losers. Bond guys have a more difficult balancing act, since all bonds are capped to the upside, but their value can be cut in half an infinite number of times. You need many more performing positions to offset those that underperform or default. Credit is really misunderstood by most small investors. In fact, in my opinion, credit is also misunderstood by many professional investors and asset allocators as well. As one of Canada's first two sell-side high-yield bond traders, the esteemed David Gluskin of Goldman Sachs Canada being the other, I have lived many head-scratching moments on the trading desks on Bay Street and Wall Street. I worked at RBC, Canada's largest bank, in 1988 when my job was to price 900 million Canadian dollars of Mexican debt for swap into Brady bonds. At this time, RBC was insolvent. So were all money center banks, hence the Brady plan. RBC's book value of equity was less than the write-down that would be required on a mark-to-market basis on its LDC book. That was a scary discovery. Most, if not all, financial analysts on the equity desks had not done this simple calculation because they didn't understand credit. They just felt, like most Americans do, that the big six Canadian banks are too big to fail. There is an implicit Canadian government backstop. That is true, but how would the government backstop it? Print fiat dollars out of thin air. Print, print, print. Solution gold, since Bitcoin did not exist. My experience with insolvent money center banks in 1988 would be re-experienced in 2008 and 2009, when LIBOR rates and other counterparty risk measures shot through the roof prior to equity markets smelling the rat. Again, 
In late 2007, equity markets rallied to new highs on Fed rate cuts when the short-term commercial paper markets and ABCP markets were shut. The banks knew there was credit contagion looming, and they stopped funding each other, a classic warning signal. And then there was 2020. In 2020, the Fed did something totally new on the QE front. It started buying corporate credit. Do you think the Fed was buying corporate credit just to grease the lending runway? Absolutely not. They were buying because hugely widening yield spreads would have meant banks were once again insolvent in 2020. Risky business, that banking. Good thing there's a government backstop. Print, print, print. Solution, Bitcoin. In 1995, I had a research article published in the Financial Analyst Journal titled Quantifying Risk in the Corporate Bond Markets. The article was cited by J.P. Morgan in a study of Bank for International Settlements Capital Allocation Guidelines for all commercial banks globally. When I say that commercial banks are regularly insolvent on a mark-to-market basis, it is because of this study, which essentially quantifies risk for banks that are levered 25x to their equity cushions. Think government backstops and fiat implications. Think Bitcoin as the insurance. I worked as high-yield trader when we brought new Canadian dollar high-yield debt to market for Rogers Communications Incorporated. At that point in its life, RCI was the largest high-yield borrower in the world. RCI issued more debt into the U.S. high-yield market than any other company. Foolish Canadian institutional investors would not own the bonds because the bonds were junk, but they owned a subordinate claim, the equity, because the equity was in their benchmark. Well, if the bonds are junk, the equity is super junk. More to come on this in future publications. I worked at GMPIM, a hedge fund in 2008-2009, in the depths of the credit crisis. My partner was Michael Weckerly, Dragon's Den on TV. Weck is one of the most colorful and experienced equity traders in Canada. He knows risk. He quickly understood that there was no point in taking long positions in most equities until the credit markets behaved. We became a credit-focused fund and bought up hundreds of millions of dollars of distressed Canadian debt in companies like Nova Chemicals, Tech, Nortel, TD Bank Prefs or preferred shares in the U.S. markets, and hedged by shorting the equity which traded mostly in Canada. This cross-border arbitrage was huge, and Canada equity accounts had very little idea why their equity was getting slashed ruthlessly. I remember one trade that was 100% risk-free and thus presented an infinite return on capital. It involved Nova Chemical short-term debt and put options. Our CIO, Jason Marks, is a Harvard MBA, an extremely smart engineer who was a brilliant mathematician. But he believed in efficient markets and could not believe I had found a risk-free trade with huge absolute return potential. To his credit, when I showed him my trading blotter and then asked, how much can I do for risk limit considerations, his answer was beautiful, do infinity. At GMPIM, we also embarked on the defining trade of my credit career. It was the restructured ABCP or MAV notes. 
we traded over 10 billion Canadian dollars of the notes from a low price of 20 cent on the dollar right up to a full recovery value of 100 cents on the dollar. And it was all low risk because we could hedge the leveraged super senior names with very targeted purchases of single name default insurance. Weck was a risk management genius. He didn't need to be an equity trader to understand risk. Asymmetric trades define careers. And ABCP, or asset-backed commercial paper, was the best asymmetric trade versus risk that I had seen up until that point in my career. But Bitcoin is a better trade than ABCP, in my opinion. Bitcoin is the best asymmetric trade I have ever seen. And I want to explain why in forthcoming credit-focused publications. I believe my trading experience is somewhat unique in Canada. I think the various cycles I have lived through give me hindsight to opine on why Bitcoin is such an important consideration for every fixed income and credit portfolio. My goal here is to share these thoughts with the readers of Rockstar. I hope that you will provide me with questions and feedback so that I can refine my pitch. Together we can draft a document that I would be comfortable presenting to any fixed income investor, large or small, to explain why Bitcoin needs to be embraced as a kind of portfolio insurance. Owning Bitcoin does not increase portfolio risk, it reduces it. You are actually taking more risk by not owning Bitcoin than you are if you have an allocation. It is imperative that all investors understand this, and I hope to lay out the arguments why, using the credit markets as the most obvious class that needs to embrace the money of the internet. The plan is to start by explaining in very general and simple terms the credit markets. For administered rates set by the central bank authorities, to government bonds and rating agencies, to corporate loans and bonds from investment grade to high yield, higher risk, to structured products that were largely responsible for the great financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. The great financial crisis just transferred excess leverage in the financial system to the balance sheet of governments. Perhaps there was no choice, but there is no question that in the ensuing decade, we had the chance to pay down the debts that we had pulled forward. We did not do that. Deficit spending increased. Quantitative easing was employed whenever there was a hint of financial uncertainty. And now, in my opinion, it is too late. It is pure mathematics. The global response to the COVID pandemic has ensured that our kids' futures are doomed to eternal fiat currency debasing. Again, simple math. Unfortunately, most people and investors are intimidated by math. They prefer to rely on subjective opinions and comforting assurances from politicians and central authorities that it is okay to print more, quote, money out of thin air. I believe the credit markets will have a very different take, and this could happen in short order. We need to be prepared, and we need to understand why. Slowly, then suddenly, is a reality in credit markets. In closing this introduction, I want to state three truisms. One, Bitcoin equals math plus code equals truth. 
never bet against open source platforms. Two, money has always been technology for making our work, energy, and time today available for consumption tomorrow. Bitcoin is programmable monetary energy, a store of value transferable on the world's most powerful computer network. Fiats are worthless, yet they have subjective value today. However, they are programmed to debase. Bond investors are really just a derivative to this reality. Choose your store of value wisely. Think physics and math and code. And three, thank goodness that Satoshi had the foresight to design Bitcoin in response to the last global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. We are headed in a dangerous direction. We are lucky to have this tool. I'm not talking as a bond trader, a pessimist. I'm talking as a realist. The bond markets are far larger and far more susceptible to contagion than are the equity markets. The credit markets are the dog that wags its tail, equity markets. And if credit markets are not happy, the equity markets are in for a world of hurt. Part 2 Okay, let's take a quick break before we hit part two and talk about our sponsor for today. And you know who it is? It's the Fold Card. It's the Fold Card and the Fold app. This is the debit card that lets you get sats back on everything in your life. I get sats back on my bills. I just, I told you at the beginning, I hadn't spun yet for the Airbnb I got for Bitcoin 2022. I just got 2%. I saved it for when I was going to do this ad. I got a spin bomb and got 10 free spins uh, right out the bat. And I just stacked 30,000 sats for buying my Airbnb with the Fold card instead of whatever else I would have used. And the app also has gift cards to tons of major retailers uh, with significant discounts or significant sats back. Uh, in fact, Amazon has up to $500 every single month for premium cardholders, 5% back. You spend $100 on an Amazon gift card and you get $5 back in sats. That is better than what you get in points using the Amazon credit card. And there's tons of other retailers. You can even get 7% sats back on a Crypto Cloaks gift card to, to buy your Node case. And also note that they accept Lightning. So you can actually use Fold. You can get a, you can get a daily a sp free spin that just gives you sats. It's just a faucet. And you can get a lot of these discounts just by using Lightning or your normal card for free just by downloading the Fold app. This is a no-brainer for the Bitcoiners out there. And you get 20% off with my code BitcoinAudible. That is a 20% discount on the premium card. You're not going to want to pass that up. Go to guyswan.com fold to check them out. And with that, Let's jump back into today's read. Part 2 In the first installment of this series, I detailed my history in financial markets together with some detail on why Bitcoin is the best asymmetric trade I have seen in my 32 years of trading. I stated that I believe every fixed income investor needs exposure to Bitcoin in order to reduce portfolio risk. Obviously, this is a big claim. In order to back up my assertion, we need to be on a similar footing regarding our understanding of fixed income 
and the various instruments that exist in the marketplace that allow for investors to take risk, manage risk or hedge, earn returns, and or experience losses. This is a deep subject. The, quote, Bible for fixed income investing is The Handbook of Fixed Income Securities by Frank Fabozzi. This, quote, handbook is 1,400 pages of green eyeshade reading. It was required reading for my CFA, and it was usually visible in multiple editions and stages of disrepair on every trading desk that I have worked. I talked with Mr. Fabozzi once on the phone. I had submitted a research piece to his Journal of Portfolio Management publication. I was proud that his journal responded and that he, the editor, wanted to further consider my research paper, but in doing so would require that I agree not to have the piece published in any competing journal. My article had already been accepted for publication in the Financial Analyst Journal, FAJ, and I had gratefully accepted. I called Mr. Fabozzi to tell him about my situation and see if perhaps the research could be published in both spots. The conversation started nicely until I informed him of the FAJ situation. At that point, he got salty. You applied to my journal and the FAJ as well? Don't you ever submit another article to my journal again? And he hung up. That was the end of my conversation with the person whom I viewed as, quote, the man of fixed income research. My article was published in the FAJ in March 1995. It was titled Quantifying Risk in the Corporate Bond Markets. It was based on an exhaustive study of 23 years worth of data, 18,000 data points that I painfully accumulated at the McGill Library in Montreal. This was before electronic data of corporate bond prices was available, and the data was compiled manually from a history of phone book-like publications that McGill had kept as records. The data and results were awesome and unique. I was able to sell this data to the Royal Bank of Canada to help with their capital allocation methodology for credit risk exposure. I had worked for RBC, and I was aware of all banks need to better understand the price credit risk. As detailed in the introduction, when I started at RBC in 1988, it was insolvent due to bad loans, defaulted, made to lesser developed countries or LDC. Price credit poorly reap the dangerous consequences. I have included a copy of the FAJ article in the appendix, see page 34. The report was cited by a research group at JP Morgan on the subject of pricing credit risk and the Bank for International Settlements Capital Allocation Guidelines. This research is important because it will formulate the basis of our conclusion on credit default swaps, CDS, and why I believe that Bitcoin should be considered as default insurance on a basket of sovereigns and fiats. I will also take a stab on what the current valuation of that basket is and come up with one valuation methodology for Bitcoin. It will be a dynamic calculation, somewhat subjective. However, it will also be one of many rebuttals to the oft-suggested claim by no-coiners that Bitcoin has no fundamental value. This summary is fairly general and does not dive into the subtleties of various fixed income structures or investments. The purpose is to get everyone on a similar footing so that I can propose a framework that will help future generations avoid the mistakes of the past.
those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. 2.1. What are fixed income instruments? As the name applies, a fixed income instrument is a contractual obligation that agrees to pay a stream of fixed payments from borrower to lender. There is a payment obligation called the coupon in the case of a bond contract or the spread in the case of a loan contract. There is also a term on the contract where the principal amount of the contract is completely repaid at maturity. Accordingly, the value of the contract can change over the life of the term, as reflected in the price, and the resulting internal rate of return is termed the yield to maturity. This yield calculation is the basis for all return considerations when comparing the relative attractiveness of various fixed income instruments. They are contractual, but they are not guaranteed. The payments, or loan spreads, are fixed. This is important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, if the risk profile of the borrower changes, the payment stream does not change to reflect the changed risk profile. In other words, if the borrower becomes more risky due to poor financial performance, the payments are too low for the risk, and the value or price of the contract will fall. Conversely, if the risk profile has improved, the payment stream is still fixed, and the value of the contract will rise. Secondly, the fixed stream is contractual and binding. If the contract cannot be fulfilled by the borrower, a default of the contract occurs, and a settlement between borrower and lender needs to be consummated. This can be an in-court or out-of-court settlement, and typically involves the transfer of ownership of the equity of the company or an asset that was provided as security against the payment obligation. Default is the overriding risk in lending. The term credit risk and default risk are often used interchangeably, but there are subtle differences, as will be described below. For now, it's important to realize that lending is an asymmetric to the downside endeavor. If a borrower is doing well, the borrower does not increase the coupon or fixed payment on the obligation. That benefit accrues to the equity owners. In fact, if the risk profile has changed for the better, the borrower will likely pay down the obligation and refinance at a lower cost, which again benefits the equity. The lender can be out of luck since their more valuable contract is paid down and they are now not able to reap the attractive risk-adjusted returns, i.e., asymmetric. On the other hand, if the risk profile of the borrower has deteriorated, it means that the fixed payments are likely too low to reward the lender for the true credit risk. Accordingly, the value of the contract will fall. The lender does not have to absorb any actual losses unless they sell the contract into the secondary market, or unless an event of default occurs. If the contract is eventually paid down by the borrower and the lender has received all of its money back, any losses are avoided, but the lender has earned a subpar return on risk. For these reasons, fixed income lenders tend to be pessimists. The asymmetric risk and return exposure leads them to ask, how much can I lose? Rather than the popular refrain from equity investors, how much can I make? 
Generally, lending portfolios need to be well diversified to offset the natural asymmetric returns when credit risk is involved. Two final notes when considering equity versus fixed income investing. Firstly, in the event of default, fixed income instruments have a priority of claim over the equity. The fixed income investor is entitled to 100% return of principal and accrued interest before the equity claim has value. There can be restructurings where there are credit classes and equity classes that agree on some residual value for the outstanding equity, but generally, the recovery on equity is small. For this reason, hedge funds can reduce the risk of losing money on their credit claims by shorting subordinate claims in the capital structure of a company. Long the debt versus short a delta weighted amount of equity is a logical risk-reducing position for exposure to a company experiencing financial hardship. Smart equity investors and analysts will take clues from the debt markets. Unfortunately, it is only a few who ever do. Secondly, if the common equity pays a dividend, this dividend is not a fixed income instrument. The dividend is not contractual, and the repayment of principal is not a consideration. Thus, there is no term and no contractually binding payment. Preferred shares notwithstanding, it is important to understand the difference between a contract and a voluntary distribution of capital to equity stakeholders. The income trust market in Canada was built on this false premise. Equity analysts would calculate the dividend or distribution yield, quote unquote, on the equity instrument and compare it to the yield to maturity of a corporate bond and proclaim the relative value of the instrument. Problem was, it was not contractual and did not incorporate the repayment of principal. Furthermore, it ranked lower in the capital structure than a bond. Too many investors in the income trusts were fooled by this narrative. Not to mention the companies who were using valuable potential growth capital and maintenance capex on distributions. Far too many companies who embraced this structure in order to give a short-term pop in their enterprise value ended up destroying shareholder capital. Always understand the contract and its relative rank in the capital stack of an enterprise. Finally, notice that we have yet to express our agreed-upon unit of account in our quote contract. I imagine everyone just assumed the contract was priced in dollars or some other fiat denomination. There is no stipulation that the contract has to be priced in fiat. However, almost all fixed income contracts are priced using a fiat as a unit of account. There are problems with this, as will be discussed in future sections. For the time being, keep an open mind that the contracts could also be priced in units of gold, ounces, or units of Bitcoin, sats, or in any other unit that is divisible, verifiable, and transferable. 2.2. Government borrowers, interest rate risk, and brewing credit dangers. According to the Institute of International Finance, in 2018, total global debt was about 250 trillion US dollars. Within that pool, the largest borrowers are federal, state, provincial, and municipal governments. 
the publicly traded instruments, the bonds, have varying terms to maturity. The fixed income obligations are issued in terms as short as 30 days, T-bills, up to lengths as long as 100 years. Terms of longer than 30 years are not common, although a German state just issued a 100-year bond. Smart state treasurer. Long-term funding at ultra-low rates locks in funding costs and moves the price risk burden to the buyer. Interestingly, Janet Yellen mentioned today the Fed is considering issuing 50-year bonds. This is a smart move for the issuer. As will be shown in subsequent sections below, the buyer is exposing themselves to huge price risk. Not just because of the inflation risk, but more because of the credit risk. The term, quote, long bonds generically refers to 30-year bonds. The term bonds tends to apply to the 10-year term and notes to the 2-year and 5-year terms. There is no difference in the structure of fixed income instruments with greater than 1-year terms. They are contractual obligations that pay semi-annual interest coupons. There is generally a very fluid secondary market in these securities, with each instrument trading for a price that drives a yield to maturity. If you were to chart a graph of the yields of the obligations relative to their maturities, you obtain a yield curve. The shape of the yield curve is a subject of great economic analysis, and in an era when rates were not manipulated by central bank interference, the yield curve was useful in predicting recessions, inflation, and growth cycles. Today, in an era of quantitative easing and yield curve control, I believe the predictive power of the yield curve is vastly diminished. It is still an extremely important graph of government rates and absolute cost of borrowing, but there is an elephant in the room. Almost all government debt from the same borrower ranks peri passu. That is to say, there is no priority of claim within the debt structure of governments because there's no subordination and no equity. Government bonds are the most widely held fixed income instrument. Every insurance company, pension fund, and most large and small institutions own government bonds. Federal government bonds of the USA have typically been called, quote, risk-free benchmarks. The yield curve of the USA sets the risk-free rates for all given terms. As we will see in the discussions on credit default swaps, it is no longer the case that govies are risk-free and opens some real dangers for investors as well as risk managers. Historically, investors have primarily been concerned with interest rate risk on govy bonds. Interest rate risk and inflation risk are synonymous. Both have been declining for my entire trading career. That is because over the last 40 years, the general level of interest rates, yield to maturities, have declined globally from a level in the early 1980s of 16% in the USA to today's rates of close to zero or even negative in some countries. A negative yielding bond is no longer an investment. In fact, if you buy a bond with a negative yield and hold it until maturity, it will have cost you money to store your value at a negative yield. At last count, 
there was close to 19 trillion U.S. dollars of negative yielding debt globally. Most was, quote, manipulated to government debt due to QE by central banks. But there is negative yielding corporate debt, too. Imagine having the luxury of being a corporation and issuing bonds where you got money back. Those CFOs should focus on that anomaly all day long. Going forward, interest rate risk due to inflation will be one-directional, higher. And due to bond math, explained in a following section, when interest rates rise, bond prices fall. But there is a brewing bigger risk than inflation for govy bonds, credit risk. Heretofore, credit risk of governments of developed G20 nations have been de minimis. That is starting to change, and credit default swaps on sovereign debt will become a much larger consideration for all investors. 2.3. Credit risk and default. Credit risk and default risk are sometimes used interchangeably, but there are important differences. The credit risk of a company can change due to systematic pressures. However, the idiosyncratic default risk remains unchanged. Credit risk is the implicit risk of owning a credit obligation that has the risk of defaulting. When G20 government balance sheets were in decent shape and operating budgets were balanced and accumulated deficits were reasonable, the implied risk of default by a government was almost zero. That is for two reasons. Firstly, their ability to tax to raise funds to pay their debts. Secondly, and more importantly, their ability to print fiat money. How could a federal government default if it could just print money to pay down its borrowings? In the past, that argument made sense. But eventually, printing money will and has become a credit boogeyman. For the purpose of setting a, quote, risk-free rate, let's continue to assume that benchmark is set by the federal government. In markets, credit risk is measured by calculating a credit spread for a given entity relative to the risk-free government rate of the same maturity. Credit spreads are impacted by the relative credit riskiness of the borrower, the term to maturity of the obligation, and the liquidity of the obligation. We could get fancy and try to separate out the liquidity risk component, but that's beyond the scope of this paper. When credit-sensitive instruments trade on a spread basis, traders will typically quote a market on a bid-and-offer basis as, quote, 18 to 15, which means that the trader will buy paper at an 18 basis points discount to the risk-free benchmark and sell paper at a 15 basis points discount. Note, there are 100 basis points in 1%. Since all bonds always trade for a price, the calculation of that three basis point market on a 10-year bond will typically translate to about a 25 cent bid and offer price spread. On a 30-year bond, because of bond math, that same spread market would translate to a larger bid and offer price spread of approximately 70 cents. Notice that a higher spread on the bid side translates to a lower price. See section 2.6 on bond pricing. A higher spread or absolute rate translates to a lower bond price, everything else being equal. 
so the bid price is lower than the offer. Traders may be wingnuts, but they're not fools. 1815 sounds inverted until you do the bond math. For very liquid securities, you can execute tens of millions of dollars of trade on a very tight market. While equity markets have the semblance of liquidity because they are transparent and trade on an exchange that is visible to the world, bond markets are actually far more liquid even though they trade over the counter. Bond markets and rates are the grease of the financial plumbing system. And for that reason, central banks are very sensitive to how the liquidity is working. Liquidity is reflected in the bid and offer spread, as well as the size of trades that can be executed. When confidence wanes and fear rises, the bid-offer spread widens, and trade sizes diminish as market makers withdraw from providing their risk capital to grease the plumbing. What tends to happen is everybody is moving in the same direction. Generally, that direction is as sellers of risk or buyers of protection. Dealers will retreat from the market because they don't want to be left holding a bag of risk for which there are no buyers, in the context of the last trade, and they will just get buried. Perhaps the most important component of the credit markets is the banking system. Confidence in the banking system is paramount. Accordingly, there are a few open market rates that measure the confidence in the system, as well as being the basis for floating rate debt facilities. These rates are LIBOR and BAs. LIBOR is the London Interbank Offered Rate, and BAs is the Banker's Acceptance Rate in Canada. Both rates represent the cost of funds between counterparties in the banking system, and the rates at which a bank will borrow or lend funds in order to satisfy loan demand. When these rates rise meaningfully above the Fed's target for overnight lending, reflected in the TED spread, T-bill versus Eurodollar, for example, it is an alarm that represents stresses in the system and that credit risk is rising and confidence is falling in the stability of the bank plumbing. During the Great Financial Crisis, these funding rates were sounding the alarm bells when equity rates were hitting all-time highs because the Fed was cutting rates. When in doubt, look to the financial markets to determine stresses, not to equity markets that can get a little irrational when the punch bowl is spiked. As stated previously, the turmoil in the Great Financial Crisis essentially transferred excess leverage in the financial system to the balance sheets of governments. The can was kicked to the govies. Printed money was the painkiller. Unfortunately, we are now addicted to the pain medicine. State, provincial, and municipal debt tends to come next of the credit ladder. Since none of the entities have equity in the capital structure, much of the implied credit protection in these entities flows from assumed federal government backstops. These are certainly not guaranteed backstops, so there is some degree of free market pricing, but generally these markets are for high-grade borrowers and low-risk-tolerance investors, many of whom assume implied federal support. Corporate risk is the final stop on the credit ladder. Banks are quasi-corporates and typically have low credit costs because they are assumed to have a government backstop, all else being equal. 
Most corporates do not have the luxury of a government backstop, although lately, airlines and car makers have been granted some special status. But in the absence of government lobbying, most corporations have an implied credit risk that will translate into a borrowing spread, or an absolute borrowing yield that is not dependent on term in the case of very risky credits that reflects a return on risk dynamic. High-grade corporates in the U.S. market currently trade at an option-adjusted spread to treasuries of 99 basis points, according to BOAML. High-yield corporates trade at a yield of 4.33% and an option-adjusted spread of 373 basis points. When I started trading high-yield 25 years ago, the yield was actually high, generally an over 10% yield to maturity with spreads of 500 basis points and higher. However, because of a 20-year yield chase and more recently the Fed interfering in the credit markets, these days high yield looks pretty low yield to me. My FAJ article shows a nice pictorial of risk in the corporate markets. The dispersions of the credit spread distributions measures true risk. Notice, as the credit quality decreases, the dispersion of the credit spread distributions increases. You can measure the standard deviations of these distributions to get a relative measure of credit risk as a function of the credit rating. See below. This is the basis of allocating capital for credit risk on a bank's balance sheet. 2.4. Credit Metrics and Credit Rating Agencies. Alright, this section is awesome. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of great stuff in here about the ridiculousness of essentially the credit ratings and how they do not actually correlate with the price of credit and the credit default swaps that you would actually see on the market and why that matters and just how subjective and not actually applying the price, the actual credit, the price of the credit in consideration of the credit rating, which is crazy. But he gets into all of it. Uh, real quick, let's hit our sponsor and we will jump back in. SwanBitcoin.com is simply the best place to go to get allocated, to get started, and to learn about how to get into the Bitcoin ecosystem to start your positioning, your savings plan in Bitcoin. They have an automatic savings plan. So if you want to buy regularly, you want to DCA and ignore all the market noise you can get every month every week, every even every day, you can buy Bitcoin on an automatic basis. You set it once and forget it. And that's in addition to an instant buy button of up to $10 million. And with Swan Private at swanbitcoin.com private, they have resources and assistance for how corporations and high net worth individuals can build generational wealth with Bitcoin. You get direct access to the Swan Private team you get tax form assistance, guidance on how to self-custody, wire support with no limit on purchases, and even guidance for your retirement account. If you've been thinking about allocating to Bitcoin and you haven't done it yet, don't wait. Start now. Go to swanbitcoin.com guy. 2.4. Credit metrics and credit rating agencies. To help investors evaluate credit risk and thus price credit on new issue debt, 
There are rating agencies who perform the, quote, art of applying their knowledge and intellect to rating a given credit. Note that it is a subjective rating that qualifies credit risk. The rating does not quantify risk. The two largest rating agencies are S&P and Moody's. In general, these entities get the relative levels of credit risk correct. In other words, they correctly differentiate a poor credit from a decent credit. Notwithstanding their bungling of the credit evaluations of most structured products in the great financial crisis, investors continue to look to them not only for advice, but also for investment guidelines as to what determines an investment-grade credit versus a non-investment-grade credit. Many pension fund guidelines are set using these subjective ratings, which can lead to lazy and dangerous behavior, such as forced selling when a credit rating is breached. For the life of me, I cannot figure out how someone determines the investment merits of a credit instrument without considering the price or contractual return of that instrument. However, somehow they have built a business around their credit expertise, quote-unquote. It is quite disappointing and opens the door for some serious conflicts of interest since they are paid by the issuer in order to obtain a rating. The unraveling of structured products in the great financial crisis was precipitated by faulty credit opinions. I worked very briefly on a contract basis for DBRS, Canada's largest rating agency. I heard a story amongst the analysts of a Japanese bank who came in for a rating because they wanted access to Canada's commercial paper market, and a DBRS rating was a prerequisite for new issue. The Japanese manager, who upon being given his rating, inquired, If I pay more money, do I get a higher rating? Sort of makes you think, eh? Rating scales are as follows. S&P and Moody's highest rating to lowest rating. Triple A, double A, A, triple B, double B, triple C, and D for default. Within each category, there are positive and negative fine-tunings of opinion. Any credit rating of double B plus or lower is deemed quote, non-investment grade. Again, no price is considered. And thus, I always say, if you give me that debt for free, I promise it would be, quote, investment grade to me. This, quote, junk debt is where big moves in price can occur. It is an exciting market that opens the door for some equity-like moves and equity-like returns. Remember, though, it is still a bond, it has prior claim to any equity of the same entity. If the bond price is distressed, then the equity should be even more distressed. Junk bonds equal super junk equity, all else being equal. In the introduction chapter, I detailed the absurdity of all the Canadian investment accounts who owned the equity of Rogers Communications, the largest high-yield borrower in the world, not just in Canada. Yet, they would not buy the bonds at any price because the bonds were junk. Wow! Head-scratching moments. Sell equity, buy the bonds, treat interest coupon like a dividend that is not being paid on the common, increase priority of claim, 
and reduce risk. It is a risk manager's absolute duty to reduce risk and increase return. The typical response, can't do it, Foss. I would have to report to my investment committee that I own a junk bond. Please don't call again. For the love of our kids, we cannot let this type of foolish money management ideology to fester. Poor math skills are one thing, but adhering to subjective evaluations of credit risk is another. This danger will be further examined when we touch on modern monetary theory, or MMT, in section 2.8. In the case of corporate debt, there are some well-defined metrics, see back page of the FAJ article, which help to provide guidance. EBITDA to interest coverage, total debt to EBITDA, and EV to EBITDA are great starting points. EBITDA, or Earnings Before Interest, Taxes, Depreciation, and Amortization, is essentially pre-tax cash flow. Since interest is a pre-tax expense, the number of times operating cash flow covers the pro forma interest obligation makes a lot of sense. In fact, it was this metric that my FAJ paper determined to be the most relevant in relating to a credit spread for a given issuer. There are also subjective evaluations, such as business risk and staying power. Business risk can be defined as volatility of cash flows due to your product pricing power. Cyclical businesses with commodity exposure, such as miners, steel companies, and chemical companies, have a high degree of cash flow volatility, and therefore their maximum credit rating is restricted due to the business risk. Even if they had low debt leverage, they would likely be capped at a triple B rating level due to the uncertainty of their EBITDA. Staying power is reflected in the industry dominance of the entity. There is no rule that big companies last longer than small, yet there is certainly a rating bias that reflects that belief. The respective ratings for governments are also very, if not completely, subjective. While total debt-to-GDP metrics are a good starting point for relative leverage, it ends there. In many cases, if you were to line up the operating cash flows of the government and its leverage statistics compared to a double-B corporate, the corporate would look better. The ability to tax, raise taxes, and print money is paramount. Since it is arguable that we have reached the point of diminishing returns in taxation, raise tax rates but actual revenue decreases since more of the economy goes underground, then the ability to print is the only saving grace. That is until investors refuse to take freshly printed and debased fiat as payment. This has happened in plenty of fiat-abusing jurisdictions. 2.5 Corporate Bonds, Terms, Covenants, and Subordination Corporate debt obligations are structured in a myriad of terms, degrees of subordination, and restrictive covenants. The term to maturity of corporate bonds tends to be a function of its credit rating. IG-rated corporate credits can typically issue commercial paper with short terms to maturity. To do so, they also need backup lines of credit with commercial banks, should the commercial paper market seize up. These facilities tend to form a part of the lending relationships that banks provide IG credits, 
that include loan facilities and non-funded banking services, such as treasury management, payroll, and fee-based services. The banking relationship is key for liquidity at the corporate level. Any bank debt is the most senior claim in the lending stack. It is generally floating rate debt, it can be swapped to fixed, that uses a floating rate benchmark such as LIBOR or the prime lending rate. A spread which reflects the credit risk of the IG corporate is attached. Quote, LIBOR plus 1.5% rate is a credit cost which, quote, floats with LIBOR. It will reprice every 30 to 90 days based on the LIBOR rate, but the spread will remain fixed, provided any covenants regarding credit metrics are not breached. Loan facilities are repayable at any time. The corporate also usually pays an ongoing line of credit fee so that they can draw on the facility at any time. Pricing these lines of credit is very important for a bank since corporates will only draw down their lines when enduring a financial uncertainty. When a company hits a rough patch, the first thing a smart CFO does is draws all their bank lines so that the bank cannot restrict access to the funding. It is a tough job for a loan officer and again reflects the asymmetric credit risk relationship. Bank debt will include covenants such as negative pledge provisions that dictate that the corporation cannot issue any prior ranking debt. For this reason, most bank facilities are for shorter terms than public issue bonds. While the public bonds of IG corporates rank peri passu with the bank debt, they are for longer maturities and are usually fixed coupons. Banks have comfort when their credit decisions are buttressed by a market that is willing to lend to the same borrower for extended periods. Typical IG corporate bonds are for 5, 10, and 30-year terms. A big new issue for new public borrowers like Apple or Microsoft's first issues will include tranches in all three terms that appeal to buyers with different risk and maturity buckets. These bonds will rank peri passu with bank debt, but could also include second lien tranches where priority of claim is subordinated. In a second lien issue, a larger spread is paid as compensation for the increased risk. This happens when covenants such as total first lien debt to EBITDA need to be respected. Corporate bond terms can be as long as a hundred years, but that is not common. In 1997, J.C. Penney issued a 100-year bond due in 2097. Its fixed coupon was 7.625%. The buyers would have been insurance companies that needed long-term assets to match long-term liabilities. In May 2020, J.C. Penney filed for bankruptcy. Hard to imagine that in 1997, lenders could claim they could price JCPenney credit risk with confidence over the next 100 years, but they did. Many likely figured it would be someone else's problem. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. High-yield corporates are a bit of a different animal. High-yield credits cannot issue commercial paper since the market is not open to them as commercial paper buyers are looking for high-quality, lower-risk exposure. Additionally, bank facilities are usually the most senior claim and have negative pledge provisions, 
but they also limit the issuance of peri passu debt. For this reason, most high-yield corporate debt is subordinate to the bank debt. Terms are limited to 10-year maturities, and the debt is non-calable for periods equal to one-half the term, so that lenders who have made smart risk-adjusted contracts don't get these contracts called away in short order. This attribute somewhat levels the asymmetric lending field, but it is still hugely biased in favor of the borrower. An example of a capital structure of a high-yield borrower could look something as follows. Bank debt equal to three turns of EBITDA. Public first lien debt equal to an additional one turn of EBITDA. Second lien debt of another two turns of EBITDA. Convertible debt of another one turn of EBITDA and common equity with market cap equal to three times EBITDA. The EV of this company is 10x EBITDA and it is seven times leveraged. Credit-focused hedge funds salivate over this type of capital structure. The CDS market would be wild too. Plenty of ways to hedge and wedge yourself. There's always a price for each tranche of the capital structure and it is a dynamic process. Sharpen your credit pencils. P.S. The common equity is the whipping boy. 2.6. Bond Pricing and Contagion Every bond that trades in the secondary markets started its life as a new issue, or a restructured obligation. It has a contractual term and semi-annual interest coupon. Generally, new issues are brought to market with a coupon which equals its yield to maturity. In other words, a 4% yield to maturity new issue generally is brought at a price of par, 100 cents on the dollar, with a contractual obligation to pay two semi-annual coupons of 2% each. After a new issue, there is usually a fairly liquid secondary market that develops for the issue. Future bond trades are impacted by supply and demand due to such considerations as a change in the general level of interest rates, a change in the actual or perceived credit quality of the issuer, or a change in overall market sentiment, risk appetite changes impacting all bond prices and implied bond spreads. A bond price is determined in an open market over-the-counter transaction between a buyer and a seller. Accrued interest is not included in the price, but is calculated after the trade and added to the settlement amount. The price of a bond is impacted by the yield to maturity that is implied in the transaction. If the YTM has increased due to credit risk or inflation expectations, the implied interest rate increase means that the price of the bond will trade lower. If the bond was issued at par, then new trades will occur at a discount to par. The opposite also applies. Calculating a change in bond price using sensitivity analysis makes use of its first derivative duration and its second derivative convexity to determine a price change. For a given change in interest rate, the price change in the bond is calculated as negative duration times the change in interest rate plus one half the convexity times the change in interest rate squared. If readers remember their physics formulas for distance, the change in price is like the change in distance. Duration is like velocity, and convexity is like acceleration. It is a Taylor series. Math can be cool. At low interest coupons, duration approaches the term to maturity. 
A 10-year bond would have an approximate 8-year duration, for example. Ignoring convexity, this means that if rates change by 100 basis points, or 1%, the price of the bond will change by 8%. 8% changes in bond prices can cost many people their year and their job. The rates can change because of a change in the general level of interest rates or because of a widening spread. Imagine if a spread widens by 200 basis points, 2%, on a 10-year bond, down by 16%, everything else being equal. On a 30-year bond, duration is 20-ish, a 200 basis points widening can cost close to 40 points, ignoring convexity. Who said credit wasn't fun? Imagine if you had a strategic short in that bond. Until now, most of these fun credit moves were confined to the corporate bond markets. But enter stage right, the new breed of sovereign risk. Credit. Contagion in the bond market is much more pronounced than in equities. For example, if provincial spreads are widening in Ontario bonds, most other Canadian provinces are widening in lockstep and there is a trickle-down effect through bank spreads, car paper spreads, high-grade corporate spreads, and even to junk spreads. This is true in the U.S. market, too, with the impact of investment-grade indices bleeding into the high-yield indices. If U.S. high-yield is widening, there is a flow through to the Canadian high-yield market. The reverse is not generally true, since most Canadian markets do not really register in the U.S. and global playgrounds. Canada is smaller and less important than the state of California, after all. The border between investment-grade and non-investment-grade debt is a sweet spot for many credit market participants. The reality is that this inefficient and arbitrary designation still sets the border for how many players can participate in the ownership of certain debt. The investment-grade market is many times larger than the high-yield market, thus the Quote, crossover credit space is a lively place. Improving credits from high yield to investment grade are called rising stars. If a company is upgraded from high yield, the universe of buyers increases substantially, and it is certain that its credit spread will narrow meaningfully. The resulting price gain on the bonds is rewarding. Conversely, falling stars have the reverse impact, and this is an area of grave concern. It was rumored that one of the main reasons the Fed stepped into the credit markets to be able to buy high-yield debt in 2020 was due to the impending downgrades of four very large investment-grade borrowers who were on the cusp of crossing over to the dark side. General Motors, Ford, AT&T, and GE have cumulative debt that is larger than the entire high-yield market. Downgrades of any one of these names likely imply a downgrade of the others. The forced selling would rock the high-yield market, which would start a domino effect and a negative feedback loop that would reach to all credit and equity markets globally. Pretty scary stuff. Follow inefficient investment guidelines. Win stupid prizes. 2.7 Equity Volatility and Credit Risk The correlation between equity markets and credit markets is causal. 
Notwithstanding the debt holder's priority of claim versus equity, there is a dynamic that overrides the idiosyncratic risk components of credit versus equity within a capital structure. When you are long credit, you are short volatility. Therefore, if equity volume starts to increase, a measure of increased risk, then credit spreads will also widen in lockstep, and vice versa. Credit hedge funds who need to dampen their credit exposure will want to purchase more volatility, thereby exacerbating the increase in volatility. It becomes a negative feedback loop, as wider spreads beget more volatility buying begets more equity price movements, always to the downside. When central banks decide to intervene in the equity markets to stabilize prices and reduce volatility, it is not because they care about equity holders. It is because they need to stop the negative feedback loop and its ultimate impact on widening spreads and the seizing of credit markets. Remember, credit is a dog. Its tail is the equity markets. Think of the levered high-yield credit example used in section 2.5 above. 2.8. Credit Default Swaps, CDS Credit default swap spreads and contracts are a relatively new financial engineering tool. They can be thought of as default insurance contracts, where you can own the insurance and effectively be short the credit. Each CDS contract has a reference obligation that trades in a credit market, so there is a natural link to the underlying name. If CDS spreads are widening on a name, bond spreads are widening too, as arbitrage players will play that basis trade. CDS contracts start with a five-year term and roll down the curve. Every 90 days, a new contract is issued and the prior contract is four and three-fourths years old and is now the off-the-run contract. Five-year contracts eventually become one-year contracts that also trade. When a credit becomes very distressed, many buyers of protection will focus on the shorter contracts in a practice that is referred to as jump-to-default protection. The spread or premium is paid by the owner of the contract to the seller of the contract. These contracts are the components of various credit indices in the developed credit markets in New York and Europe. There can be, and usually is, much higher notional value of credit default swap contracts amongst sophisticated institutional accounts than the amount of debt outstanding in the company. The credit default swap contracts can thus drive the price of the bonds, not the other way around. There is no limit to the notional value of CDS contracts outstanding on any name, but each contract has an offsetting buyer and seller. This opens the door for important counterparty risk considerations. Imagine if you owned CDS on Lehman Brothers in 2008, a winning trade, but the counterparty was Bear Stearns. You may have to run out and purchase protection on Bear Stearns, thereby pouring gas on the credit contagion fire. I believe it was Warren Buffett who said, credit default swaps enable you to buy fire insurance on your neighbor's home, and then you try and help him burn his house down. That is a little harsh, but it is not altogether untrue. The sellers of CDS can use hedging techniques where they use equity put options on the same name to manage their exposure. This is another reason that if CDS and credit swaps widen, the equity markets can get punched around like a toy clown. 
This dynamic is extremely important for corporate credit, and it is a well-worn path. What is not so well-worn is credit default swaps on sovereign credits. This is relatively new, and in my opinion, could be the most dangerous component of sovereign debt going forward. Inflation risk considerations for sovereigns will become overwhelmed by credit concerns. Two years prior to the great financial crisis, you could buy default insurance on Lehman Brothers for nine basis points, 0.09%. That meant you could insure $10 million of debt against default for a premium of $9,000 per year. Two years later, that same contract was worth millions of dollars. Are we headed down the same path with the sovereigns? Where an implosion in credit default swaps is contagious and blows all MMTers out of the water. Think of the potential for long-tailed sovereign bonds to get smoked if credit spreads widen by hundreds of basis points See bond pricing section 2.6 above. This will cause many bond managers and many economists indigestion. Most sovereign bond fund managers and economists are still focused on interest rate risk rather than the brewing credit focus. And if credit default swaps on the USA is widening, the CDS of Canada is bound to follow suit. This is how markets work in credit land. Hedge and wedge yourself. Moreover, the level of sovereign CDS effectively sets a base spread for which all other credits will be bound. In other words, it is unlikely that the spreads of any financial institution will trade inside the credit default swaps for the jurisdictional sovereign. Same all down the line. Therefore, a widening of sovereign CDS leads to a cascading effect down the credit spectrum, contagion, both inter-country and within a specific country. I am certain most modern monetary theorists have never traded credit. They also appear to be poor at math. This is a dangerous combination because in credit markets, it starts as a slow drip and then it becomes a flood, slowly, then suddenly. Relying on an economics professor to opine that, quote, deficits are a myth is tantamount to a junior chef saying that the recipe is easy, no cooking experience necessary. It is the equivalent to managing credit risk using only subjective rating agency opinions. No prices are considered. Remember, there is always a price on both fronts. It is also antithesis to open market participants who view real, unmanipulated hurdle rates for true risk to be a market dynamic. The allocation of capital in an efficient and prudent manner is the basis of capitalism. Culling the herd, or cleansing, leads to sustainable business models without walking zombie companies or countries. Manipulated credit and support can sustain zombie companies and countries and delays default, thereby diverting scarce capital from investment-worthy entities. Copied below is an MMT quote by influential Bloomberg editor Joe Weisenthal. 
Joe is the same reporter who tweeted that there may be value in Hertz equity when the bonds were trading at 40% of par and the company was in restructuring. He clearly has little experience in credit markets. This is the kind of blind commentary that leads to extremely dangerous beliefs. It is now about credit risk. In an expanding debt burden, government bonds do not mature. They need to roll over. When that confidence to roll ebbs, the marginal buyer cannot hold back the flood. You can get your money back, but that will require more printing. Fiat will debase faster, and eventually, bondholders will realize they are holding a circular logic error. On January 19th, 2021, Joe Weisenthal wrote to a worldwide audience, quote, the MMT view is that government spending is always based on monetary financing. This is key. It doesn't matter whether deficits are high or low. It doesn't matter whether rates are 0% or 5%. It doesn't matter whether the Fed is buying bonds or shrinking the balance sheet. The MMT view is that a country like the US, which issues and spends its own currency, always finances spending the same way, by creating money. This is as true now as it was during the Clinton surplus years. As such, conventional notions of spending sustainability, like the size of the deficit or debt-to-GDP, are useless. Instead, the main constraints on spending are political. Will politicians allocate the money? And real. Are there enough real resources in the economy to absorb the spending? If there is a shortage of real resources, we would expect to see inflation. Inflation is the indicator that spending is unsustainable, not some arbitrary ratio. Total debt-to-GDP ratios are useless? Why pay taxes then, Mr. Weisenthal? Just print our way to prosperity. Remember the circular error message in Lotus 123 and Excel? That is exactly what needs to be flashing in the bottom left of his brain. Perhaps he never tried to balance a budget or design a spreadsheet based on mathematics and code. He obviously prefers subjective analysis. However, his opinions carry weight and danger. In a debt-to-GDP spiral, the fiat currency is the error term. That is pure mathematics. It is a spiral to which there is no mathematical escape. If you are holding a fiat obligation, it is debasing as fast as the MMTers can, quote, finance spending in the same way by creating money. Creating money out of thin air. I wish I had a printing press in my basement to pay my mortgage the quote same way. This chapter ends with five famous quotes. One, credit without default is like religion without hell. Howard Marks. Two, communism only works until you run out of other people's money. Margaret Thatcher. Three, Trust, but verify. Ronald Reagan. Sounds like the Gipper was a Bitcoiner. Four. Capitalism is where risk is rewarded and punished. Jeff Booth, The Price of Tomorrow. And five. The best way to destroy capitalism is to debauch the currency. Vlad Lenin. Our, quote, Minsky moment could be on the horizon. American economist Hyman Minsky theorized that a tipping point occurs 
where the debt-fueled asset bubble collapses and assets become difficult to sell at any price. A market collapse ensues. Hat tip Jeff Booth, the price of tomorrow. That is a real risk that will begin to be reflected in the credit default swaps of sovereigns. Ed Yardini, macro strategist at Yardini Research, famously coined the term bond vigilantes. It was in reference to the free market bond investors keeping the Fed, quote, honest in its responsibility of minding inflationary pressures. Yardini was recently on CNBC where he stated, quote, The Fed tried to bury the bond vigilantes, but they are not dead. The Fed did not succeed. It is my assertion that bond vigilantes will become sovereign CDS vigilantes. Absolute interest rates can move higher because of inflationary concerns and because of credit concerns. Credit concerns will overwhelm inflationary concerns, particularly if the deflationary impact of technological advances continues. However, technology does not solve credit risk in sovereigns and fiats. What technology does solve is store-of-value problems with fiats. Bitcoin. We will examine credit risk contagion in the next installment. All owners of sovereign debt need to be aware that credit mark-to-market losses can be very meaningful. A 100 basis points widening 1% will knock 20% off the price of long bonds, as detailed in Section 2.6. The Chinese PBOC owns $1 trillion in U.S. Treasury debt. All pension funds, life insurance companies, mutual funds, and individual investors need to understand the reality of credit exposure versus manipulated interest rate exposure. We will also calculate a Fulcrum Index, essentially a dynamic calculation of the price of credit insurance multiplied by the funded and unfunded liabilities of a basket of sovereign credits. The Fulcrum Index can also be thought of as a proxy for the value of the hardest money or asset ever created. Bitcoin. Study math, people, or end up playing stupid games and winning stupid prizes. Part 3. Alright, let's pause right there and we will come back tomorrow with part 3 and 4 of this. And this is when he starts getting into his own valuation model. Um, what he refers to, uh, he and actually uh, Sean, somebody, I can't remember his last name uh, for some reason right now. But uh, they are trying to put together something referred to as the Fulcrum Index. And it is a model, it's a basic model to... Uh, make a simple pricing mechanism because because Bitcoin has such a concrete downside. It can only go to zero. It is its own asset. You are not liable for some m- multiple, like so many leveraged instruments and things. You are not you are not liable for anything more than what you actually put into it. And yet, its upside potential, particularly as a hedge, as a bet against sovereign debt as a credit default swap on fiat currency, not to mention the added benefit of the fact that it is a a risk-off asset in the sense that you are actually holding it. You don't even have counterparty risk 
which is a huge thing. And he talks about this, I think it's in section two, if I'm not mistaken. It might have been in section three, so you might not have gotten there yet. But he talks about how, like, even if, like, when Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns went under, is that even if you had, like, a credit default swap, you still had incredible counterparty risk. Like, you may have bought your, you bought you may have purchased your credit default swap with Bear Stearns, they might be the one holding your credit default swap for Lehman Brothers. And Bear Stearns may actually be so exposed to Lehman Brothers that they then collapse. And it doesn't matter if you're in the tra- you're in the green, if you've made this wonderful bet on by buying credit default swaps that you're going to then pull out against Lehman Brothers if Bear Stearns is the counterparty that has to pay you for those credit default swaps. And this happened. This is, this is exactly the sort of contagion that can start to unravel where even correct bets, even understanding exactly what happens can put you in an, extreme situ- an extremely dangerous situation when credit markets start to decouple, when they start to fall apart and equity markets go nuts. As he says, you know, the equity markets are the tail and the credit market is the, the credit risks and the credit markets are the dog. So understanding the credit markets and understanding credit risk and how to evaluate the price and when these things decouple, when the price starts to show you that the markets are going to crash or excuse me, that the markets are cracking, you, you can precede, you can see when the equity markets are about to get nuts, when the equity market's about to become incredibly volatile because people get scared out of the credit markets. And when that happens, that is the... That's the, that's the quote-unquote preferred shares, right? And that's, they're not actually that. But the credit market is what is going to get paid before the equity matters. And he gets into the next section about how it is that basically banks are always insolvent. That on a mark-to-market basis, when you, when you apply their deposits and their liabilities against their equity, that none of the banks are solvent. Like, and and it's, it's really crazy like how he... Unwrap, unravels all of this stuff and uh, hopefully tries to make sense of it. I know it, I know it can be hard to follow sometimes in audio. Um, that is why, well, I mean, it's just a dense and complex topic. But we, I do want to do an episode covering this stuff again and uh, uh, hopefully, like I said, uh, talking to Greg Foss um, on this show so that we can really break down this concept and just go through basically the entire model, this entire thing that he laid out in this report um, and I also want to have probably, probably this week, I want to have this whole thing together in one full audiobook that you can just download from the website uh, at bitcoinaudible.com. I haven't kept up with it very well, but I apologize for that. Uh, I am, there is slowly, things are moving in the background on that, and I want to have a couple of things up so that uh, you, can, you guys can hit some of these critical, like really long really audiobook pieces. I think this thing in full is like two hours and 20, 30 minutes. I don't, I don't even know. It's an audiobook. This is, this is literally an audiobook. So um, I will have this available for download uh, so that you can listen to it in full in one big piece on BitcoinAudible.com. And parts two, or excuse me, three and four will be dropping tomorrow. Like I said, I've only got a little bit of cleanup to do and uh, uh, last little section and we are done. Uh, this is going to be a really good one, and I've got some great stuff coming later on this week. I don't want to spoil the surprise yet. So, uh, yeah, with that, 
Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to check out our amazing sponsors and the links and discounts for all you guys uh, in the show notes. Those are the Fold Card, Swan Bitcoin, the Bitcoin at 2022 conference, which is literally right around the corner, and the Bitbox hardware wallet. Uh, discounts, goodies, affiliate links, fun stuff, all in the show notes. Check them out. I will catch you guys at Bitcoin 2022. We are going to have an absolute blast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss tomorrow's episodes, uh, episode of part three and four of this incredible piece. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, everybody, take it easy. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.